You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? That is what I'm talking about. I see quite a few new faces here. Can you raise your hand if this is the first time you've been here? I see a few liars and a few legitimate people. It's very nice to have you if it's your first time here. My name's David. Um, I am the, the teaching pastor here. Um, and I haven't preached in the last two weeks. Yeah, I've missed you guys. I've missed, I mean, I've still been here, but I've missed doing this. So I'll probably get you out of here by 11 or 11.30. got to make up for lost weeks. Um, it's a joke. Some of you know that that's not funny because I do tend to talk too much. Um, but yeah, anyway, that was my wife that you saw. Now the stage is significantly more hairy and uh, less attractive, but here we are, you know, you are what you are, God made you this way. Um, so we are uh, finishing this mini-series that we've been in for the last five weeks, this is week five, and we've called it Alone. Um, and what we've been doing is we, we've been looking at the five core doctrines, uh, or not the five core, but five of the core doctrines of Christianity. Um, the five solas which if you don't know Latin, and that's totally fine. We don't use a whole lot of Latin in this church. Sola means alone, so you can see how clever we are whenever we name sermon series. So this one's called Alone, and uh, what we're doing really is we're celebrating the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and, and short and sweet, what that is, is uh, there was a German monk named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but a, a white German monk named Martin Luther who was alive in the 1500s. And, uh, and, and what had happened was he, was he was looking around, he was a Roman Catholic at the time, um, and he saw that there was a lot of corrupt teaching within the Catholic Church, and he started trying to reform the church. And one of the things he did was on October 31st, 1517, he took a list of 95 problems that he had with the Catholic Church, things that he wanted to see change and discuss, and he nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, and, and what he was trying to do, he wasn't trying to make a statement by nailing it. That was actually normal. That's what you did if you wanted to have like a scholarly discussion with other priests or theologians. Um, and that kick-started the revolution. So uh, a lot of people, uh, the revolution of the Reformation. Sorry, I got confused with myself. We are Revolution Church. He started the Reformation. Um, yeah, right up here. I'm looking, seeing what happens when I don't look at my notes. Um, but a lot of people say that October 31st is the, the birthday of the Reformation. So I think that's really cool. And for a dude who really likes horror movies and Halloween, if you can mix theology in with that, I am just sold. I've been doing nothing but watching like Freddy Krueger movies and reading old books about Martin Luther. This month has been fantastic. Um, but tomorrow is actually the 499th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant church. So if, if you're here and you're not Roman Catholic, it's like a birthday for us. Um, and if you're here and you are Roman Catholic, I want you to know we don't hate you at all. We disagree with the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, but we're really glad that you're here. Um, but in this series, so far with these five solas, we've seen four of them. And, and what they are, are Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Right. So to kind of summarize that, we see that Scripture alone is the only thing that can bind the conscience of a believer. No tradition, no pope, no church, right? no man-made tradition, but solely the Bible, sola scriptura. The Scriptures alone, right? Um, and, and, and in Scripture alone, we see how we are saved and how to live a life that pleases God, basically. Right? Now, certain things in Scripture are harder to see than others, but those two concepts, how to be saved and how to live a godly life, are very clear and perceivable, so much that a child can read the Scriptures and see those things. 
Um, and if we look at Scripture to see how we're saved, that's where the next three come along. We are saved by grace alone. Not anything that you've done to merit your salvation. You can't earn God's love. He looked down on you in love and chose to save you, chose to send Christ. Right, so where we get Christ alone, that he sent Jesus to earth. Jesus lived a perfect life that you can't live, meeting all of God's righteous requirements of the law in your place, and then suffered the death that you deserve on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. And he did that in your place if you will have faith in Christ, which just means to trust him, to trust God's promise that Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. If you trust that, God will credit you with Jesus' perfection whenever you stand before him in judgment. So scripture alone teaches us that grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone has saved those of us who believe. And now we come to the final week. We come to soli deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. Right? And in this doctrine, we're going to see that God works our salvation. He has worked our salvation in such a way that he alone can receive glory from it or for it. And we can't take even a portion of a fraction of a percent of glory from him in this salvation. And tonight we're going to look at why and how God saved those of us who trust and follow Christ. And then we're going to consider um, how we should respond to these truths of our salvation. And i got uh, two disclaimers before I go on any further. One, if you're one of those people who likes to flip around in your Bible to follow us along, that, that's fantastic. And I'm not trying to tell you that you can't. I'm saying that you're not going to catch me this evening, right? Because we're going to look at, like, I think 15 or 16 different passages in the Bible, but it's all going to be up here on the screen. Also, if you're new uh, and the Bible you have doesn't make much sense to you, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, but the reason why we're going to be looking at so much scripture, probably almost equal to how much I'm going to talk, we're going to be reading, is because I want you to believe what the Bible says. Right? One of the problems of the Reformation is people didn't know what the Bible said. They didn't have access to the scriptures, and they just allowed the papacy and priests and whatever to just spoon-feed them all kinds of junk that's not in the Bible. And we refuse to let that happen here. Okay, So what does scripture say? Not what does Dave say. What does the Bible say? So that's one. We're going to look at a lot of, lot of scripture. Um, and two... We're going to be talking about some stuff that may be really weird to you in regards to your salvation and just how um, God saves people. Um, it may be weird if you're new to these teachings. Um, it might frustrate you. It might confuse you. Um, but I, I, I beg that you would, you would hear me out to the end. Hear me out to the end um, and come talk to me, Right? Don't just, don't just wallow in, I don't understand, or I'm upset, or I don't agree with that, or I'm offended. Um, come talk to me, or, or anyone really that's going to be on this stage, especially me and Stephen, the guy who was singing earlier. Please, um, I understand how you feel, because these things don't naturally feel right to us, but it's what the scripture says. All right, but without any more, we're going to jump off in Psalm 115, verse 1. Yeah, all you reform guys thought we were going to go to Romans or something, didn't you? Yeah, no, we're in the Psalms, which we're going to go there too, but we're in the Psalm. We're in Psalm 115, 1. Let's see what the psalmist wrote. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, usually what I would do at this point is is we would pray and then we would dive into me just trying to rip this text apart as much as I can. That's actually not what we're going to do this evening. 
Right, we are going to pray here in a moment, uh, but that's not, that's not what we're going to do. This is where we're jumping off from, and I'm not going to dissect this verse because that verse means exactly what it says. Right On its face, it's easy. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake, why? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This is what God's people cry out to God at all times. To Him be glory, not me. He is love. He is beautiful. He is faithful. I fail. I don't always love Him the way that I should. I'm not always faithful to Him the way that I should. But He is all of those things to me, and he deserves praise and worship and glory, and he alone. Everything is all about God. This world is not about you. Your salvation is not about you. Your life is not about you. Everything is about him and his glory. And that's the concept that we're going to be digging through for the next however long we're here. And that's all glory to God alone. So let's pray. Father, please send your Holy Spirit to bring dead men and dead women to life this evening. God, for those of us who already trust in your Son for salvation, help us see the beauty of these truths that we're going to look at and not be repulsed by them, but to embrace them and see that you are glorious, that you are gracious, that you are loving, and that it's, it's, almost incon- it's inconceivable how much that you love us. May we leave here saying, all glory be to my God and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first statement that I'm going to make, right? Now that that we got the the beginning out of the way. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. It sounds funny. Like, it's okay. Like, I remember the first time I ever read that, or like, if you guys listen to John Piper, like, he's like a broken record. That's pretty much all he says in every sermon ever. Uh, he's a way better preacher than me. Look him up. John Piper. Right? He's best Baptist alive, I would argue. Um, yeah, him and John MacArthur, they can duke that out if they want to. Um, but God is the most God-centered being in the universe. Period. And what I mean by that is he does all things for his glory. He is consumed with his own glory. Right, and I want to give you guys some, some examples of that. Um, and it's, this is not an exhaustive list, and this is where we're going to, I'm just going to be like machine gun going through scriptures here for a minute. I want you to see this. God created the world around us, right? The world that we can perceive, um, like the trees, the sky, all, all of the, the visible world around us. He did this for his glory. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Right? So in the visible world around us, we can look out and see that there is a God. We can see his divine power. We can see his, his eternality. Right? We know something created this, and he did this to display his glory. But not only in the, the creation around us, like the universe, but in mankind as well. You and I were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Right, so we see that you and I, we, we, were, we were created to display the image of God, to worship Him for His glory. To kind of just, instead of doing little specifics, let's get really broad here. All things are for the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 
So all things are for His glory. And not only that, but all things whatsoever come to pass are a part of His plan for His glory. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So if we look at Romans 11 and Ephesians 1, He works all things according to the purpose of His will or the counsel of His will, and all things are for Him, through Him, and to Him for His glory. Drive that home a little bit further. All things exist for His glory. Colossians 1.16, referring specifically to Jesus. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or demons or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. For Him. I like how it doesn't leave anything out, even the negative things, like rulers and authorities and demons. All things. Whatever exists is for His glory. So we've seen just kind of a summary, everything. There's not one thing. That's not for his glory. And then God speaks about his own glory. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, and I would argue this, this might be one of the, like, I think that this is one of the core passages of the entire Bible. I think here we see God summed up, almost, if he can be summed up. He's infinite, so we really can't do that. But I think this is one of the core things that Scripture teaches us. He says this, I am the Lord. He uses his personal name there that he reveals himself to his people. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God does everything for His glory, and He refuses to share it with anyone. All things for me, by me, through me, I will not share, because I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Lord. So we can see then, I hope hope I'm getting annoying for a lot of you guys. We can see then that everything happens and exists for the glory of God. right? That God sovereignly orchestrates whatsoever comes to pass so that He is glorified in some way or another. Everything. Even bad things. Which that's another sermon for another time. But even bad things that happen. He has orchestrated. And if you don't believe me, in Isaiah, God says, I bring the calamity and I bring the peace. All things for his glory. Even if we can't see how, he will still receive glory from it. And uh, Romans 8.28 says that his people benefit from whatsoever comes to pass because it's in accordance with his plan to his glory for the good of his people whom he has chosen and called. But what do we mean by God's glory, right? Like, I totally understand, and I'm going to be using this, like, that phrase so much more throughout the rest of this sermon, so we need to know what I mean by that. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to define it because the, the, the theme of God's glory is so huge, but this is as, sim- as simply as I, can, as I can put it here. God's glory is the manifestation of God's perfection or attributes. That's how we're going to define it this evening. The manifestation of God's perfection or the manifestation of God's attributes, that that this is God showing who he is, displaying who he is. So all things happen and exist so that God might display himself. Right? Just a few examples. Creation. We look around us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, we can clearly perceive God's, God's power and his like divine eternality. 
right? So we can look at creation around us and see his power and that he is creator. We can look at the fact that God gives us his scripture, right? His law, where he tells us what he expects out of humanity, what he expects us to believe, how he expects us to live. And we see that in him being the lawgiver, he is the supreme authority and governor of the universe. And ultimately, he'll be the judge of all humanity. Did you break my law? Did you keep my law? Did you have faith in my son? Did you reject my son? That he's going to be the ultimate judge. We can look at life around us, the, the life cycle, and see that God is the author of life and also the one who brings death, that he is the sustainer of life. Nothing exists unless he wants it to. We can even look at the fact that God has decreed and allowed sin to enter into the world. And we can see that from that, God displays his wrath against those who would disobey him. That God proves to be an avenger of himself, of his own holiness. That whenever he's offended by a sinner, he avenges himself. He avenges those who are oppressed. He proves himself to be a righteous, holy judge. We see in Christ crucified and raised from the dead that God is redeemer and savior of his people. And we can see in our salvation that God is mighty to save and that he's faithful to a people who are unfaithful to him because he's gracious. I want to make a note here. Again, that's not an exhaustive list. Those things are not God's glory. I I know I'm being a little bit confusing. Those things that I just named are not God's glory itself. They are the outworkings or manifestations of His glory. God's glory is wholly contained in Himself and is contingent upon nothing. He is perfect all by Himself. His glory is not contingent on whether or not He displays it. God needs nothing. He is perfect. That's what it means to be perfect is you need nothing. He doesn't need to display His glory either. But He desires to display who He is. And we know that whatever God desires to do is, by definition, good because he is the fountainhead of all that is good. So it's good that he wants to display who he is. So a little bit of a summary. Since all things come to pass and exist for God's glory, then all of creation that he has created for his glory is obligated to glorify God for who he is. Now, what do I mean by glorify God? Whenever I say glorify God, I mean, I mean this. To credit or praise, worship, exalt, magnify God for his perfection. That's what I mean by glorify. Now, whenever I say magnify, I don't mean magnify like a microscope where you take something that's small and show it to be larger than what it is. I mean magnify like a telescope, right? A telescope lets you properly see a star, right? Let you actually see uh, just a, a portion of how big and beautiful that it actually is. That's what I mean by magnify God. So all of creation is obligated to magnify him for who he is as we see him display himself in all things. Now, if you're like me, you don't like this. Let's be honest. Like, like, by, like my, my nature, right, my sinful nature, we don't like this, right? Why? Because it seems kind of narcissistic, doesn't it? You can be honest in here, like the ceiling's not going to fall in, lightning's not going to flash from the thing and get you. Um, Not funny? Whatever. Um, I got a mic and you don't. Um, So this might seem narcissistic out of God, or it might seem egotistical of God, that he should be about his own glory. I know whenever I first started, like, studying this kind of stuff, I was like, man, God seems like, like he's got a really big head. But it's not egotistical of him that he would be this way at all 
Right, just go with me on this. We naturally glorify things that are exceptional or unique. Naturally. You can't help but do it. Right? Now, I'm not in sports, but some of my friends that are say LeBron James is really awesome. Right? I'm so far like, out of the loop that like, Michael Jordan is like, the last person that I cared about in the NBA at all. Um, right? But people say, like, you know, LeBron James, like, he is essentially better than Michael Jordan. I don't know if that's true. Can we get a vote? I'm kidding. I'm not starting that gang war up in here. Um, but what do we see? We see he's really good at basketball. And what do people say? This dude is awesome. This dude is, you know, King James or whatever. Uh, I don't really care. Um, or we see football teams, right? If there's like an undefeated football team that goes on to like win a national title or something like that, what do people say? You bring up that team or they see something about football and they say, hey, you know, did you see this team? They are awesome. They are the best at what they do. They destroyed everybody and they glorify that team, right? Or bands. You know, if you find a band, which is always going to be a metal band because that's the best kind of music in the world, you know, and you find a metal band and it's awesome and you want to go see their shows and you want to buy their records and you're always saying like, come listen to this music because these guys are the best at what they do do or we do this with our spouses right or boyfriends and girlfriends whatever um or you should hopefully I do, hopefully you do this with your spouses that you you, know, you believe that your spouse is unique that it doesn't get any better than your spouse not that we worship our spouses but we should have a, an affection towards them right and you could argue that we glorify all of these things that i've mentioned sports teams bands our spouses children things like that right anything that we see we deem exceptional or unique we naturally glorify but god says this about himself in isaiah 45 the first half of it he says i am the lord and there is no other beside me there is no god think about that for a second how unique is he then there are other bands. There are other people that you could have married. Right? I know I sound like, like the devil up here with that one. But there are other people you could have married. There are other bands. There are better athletes. There's always someone or something that's going to be better. Everything that we like in this life is imperfect on some level or can let you down. But God says he is utterly unique. There is no other God. There is no other creator. There is no other sustainer. There is no other author of life. There is no other redeemer. There is no other judge. There is no other God. We should then naturally want to glorify God because he is supremely unique and there is no other. But we don't. We don't want to glorify God because we're sinners naturally. We're born with hearts that are bent away from God and hostile against him and we don't want anything to do with him. Right? We don't want anything to do with the light that comes from him. We don't want to worship him or glorify him. So though we would normally glorify something unique and awesome, we would refuse to glorify the one who is supremely unique and supremely awesome, who actually deserves it. Think about how heinous that that is. We would glorify something other than him and refuse to glorify him. That's actually Paul's charge against all of humanity in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, meaning they perceived him in the world around, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Paul goes on to say they worshiped the creation instead of the creator. That's what Paul charges the whole world with. That is the root of all sin, really is refusing to glorify God, denying God his due and rebelling against him. That is sin. 
And this is the worst thing that we could do. This is the worst charge that could ever be brought against us that we wouldn't glorify this God. Since God is supremely unique and we won't glorify Him, it is an offense against Him for us not to praise Him for who He is. And an offense against God is one of the ways that we can talk about sin. Because whenever you sin, you primarily offend God. So it's a sin against Him not to worship Him, not to glorify Him. And God says He punishes sinners in hell for eternity. That's heavy, and we're all guilty of it. You've all worshipped the creation instead of the creator. So it's really not wrong that he would demand us to glorify him because this is something that we naturally do. And yet we won't do it for him. Not only that, but another reason that it's okay for God to demand his own self-glorification. We were created to glorify God. Romans 11.36 and Colossians 1.16 tells us all things are for him and through him and to him, to his glory. Amen. So I would argue this. We are most satisfied or fulfilled or fulfilled then when we live for God's glory. And I say that because the psalmist in Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You, he's talking to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To know God is to glorify Him. And he's talking about knowing God here. Fullness of joy in your presence. At your right hand, pleasure. I am satisfied when I know you. And to know you is to glorify you. Doing what you were created for satisfies you. That's why we see people who don't know Christ trying to find pleasure and satisfaction in everything in this world around them. And yet what are they? They're miserable. Maybe not on the surface, but deep down there must be something more is what racks their brain. Even if they won't admit it. That's what the scriptures tell us. So then think about this. If doing what we're created for satisfies us, and we were created to glorify God, then it would actually be unloving for God to not instruct us to be about his glory. Because he would be like leaving us to grope around in the dark, never unfulfilled, and he's never showing us. What were we created for? It would be unloving for him to do that. So I would argue that God is morally justified in all regards to be about his glory, legally and as a loving father. But looking at the doctrine to the glory of God alone, right? I thought we just set the groundwork. <laughs> yeah, it's 25 minutes worth of groundwork, good times, right? We just laid the groundwork because looking at the, the doctrine of the glory, to the glory of God alone, we're seeing that God has, de- has designed his plan of salvation in such a way that he alone can receive the glory for it. If we look to scripture alone to see this plan of salvation and not our own preconceived notions about who God is, then we will see how he saves us. So how does God save sinners? If that's what we're looking at, God saves us in such a peculiar, unique way that he alone receives glory, then how did he save us? This is really important, I think, for us to know, um, because I would argue this. Many people, maybe even here, have truly been born again of the Holy Spirit, right? And they trust that Christ has paid the penalty for their sin, and he lived a perfect life for them, and he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, right? They're Christians, but they don't know or understand the full extent of God's work to save them. I know Jesus died for my sins and he was raised for my justification. And outside of that, I don't really know what else it took to save me. 
And those people are genuinely saved. Thank God we're not saved by having good theology. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That, I'm serious. Like, remember that too, by the way, like you arrogant theologians out there. And I am chief among you. No one is saved by what they know. They're saved by who they trust in. Christ alone. But we need constantly reminded of how God saved us completely by himself. Without our help. So that we never become arrogant enough to claim that we played a part in it whatsoever. Because to say that you played a part in your salvation is to rob God of his glory. And that is heinous to try to take glory from God. So how did God save us? The plan to save sinners, kind of matrixy on this for a second. The plan to save sinners started in eternity past. Before time began, God was. Right? That's a given. He's eternal. Right? Before time began, God declared some things. We, in, in theology, we call this the decrees of God. We don't know really what order they came in. That's kind of a moot point. We don't need to talk about that. But before time began, God declared that the fall would happen. God declared that mankind would indeed rebel against him and that the world would fall into chaos and sin and destruction and despair. And then in the same time period before time began, I know I'm talking kind of weird, in this same time, God made a covenant with Jesus that we call the covenant of redemption. A covenant's an agreement. And in this covenant, uh, Jesus agreed that to the glory of God the Father, He would someday come and save sinners. So Jesus was not plan B because mankind screwed it up. God decreed all of these things simultaneously. They will fall, and I have made a covenant of redemption with Jesus that he will come and save sinners. And in those decrees of God, God also did something else. He chose whom he would save. Or some people refer to this as election, because that's the word that the Bible uses. God elected to save some We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, God, predestined us for adoption to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. So though none deserved to be chosen, hear me on that, no one deserved to be chosen by God because all have gladly rebelled against Him. God decided to set saving love on some Consider the mercy of God. They will rebel. They will be hostile towards me. And I will save some of them. That's infinite mercy. If he said, I will save one of them, that's merciful. But the untold, the scores of people that he has decided to save, that is mercy unfathomable. Consider this if you're here and you're a Christian. Knowing everything that you would ever do every blasphemous thought, every word, every action you would do to break his law, he, in love, chose you to know him. Consider that. 
Though there was nothing lovable or good in us because we are sinners and we have a sinful nature, though there was nothing good in us, God took the initiative in spite of you, in spite of me, in spite of our wickedness, He took the initiative to love us. And what did He choose us for? Paul says He chose to make us blameless in Christ. He chose to make us blameless in His eyes. Why? Verse 6 says, to the praise of His glorious grace, He chose to save us. What does that mean? So that we would marvel at God's love and His kindness towards us. Undeserving sinners who deserve to go to hell. So that we would stand before the world and Him and say, like Jonah did, salvation is of the Lord and not of me. Salvation is from Him and Him alone. But then after choosing us, right, we're still sinners. We still need an atonement. We still need someone to represent us before God because we can't represent ourselves because if we do, we're going to go to hell because we're sinners. So after choosing us, when the time had come, God sent his son to accomplish our salvation. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Whenever Paul says, born of a woman, born under the law, what he's referring to is the fact that God demanded that mankind obey him perfectly or suffer his wrath for all of eternity. Born under the law, God's demands to perfectly obey him. Born of a woman means to to be a human being because he's going to have to represent human beings. So Christ became a man and perfectly fulfilled God's law for men as our representative. Kelly talked about this last week. And then Christ suffered the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And why? Verse 5 says, in order to redeem those under the law. Redeem means to buy back those of us who were under the curse of God's law. The curse of the law is our judgment from God for breaking his law. So Jesus bought us back as a substitute in our place. Why? So that we could receive adoption as sons. Notice Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 5 talks about we were predestined for adoption. So Jesus did for us what we couldn't so that God's plan would happen in spite of our our rebellion and failure to obey God perfectly. Like, can you see already? And I can't make you see this. But can you see how God is operating on his own for you and for me? He chooses to save us. And then he places demands on us that we cannot fulfill because of our own unrighteousness. But then he fulfills his own demands for us. This is is insane. This is grace. He fulfills his own demands for us. Why? So that we can receive the adoption that he predestined us to receive. He's completely operating on his own apart from us. None of us were born then. Christ died for you before you were born. God chose you before time even began. He's doing this completely without your help. But that's not all. God decreed that Christ's work is to be received by faith. By trusting him. But our problem, according to the Bible, is that we are spiritually dead. 
We're spiritually dead, faithless sinners by birth who are hostile against God, want nothing to do with Him, don't trust Him. We see the light and we hide from the light because we love the darkness and we despise Him. But God fixes that problem for us too. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-8 through eight says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This gift of God refers to both the grace and the faith to trust in Christ. That's how the Greek works out, actually. I'm not going to spare you that because I'm not a Greek scholar. So we see from that passage that God sends His Holy Spirit that Paul, in other letters, refers to as the gift giver. So God sends His Holy Spirit to make us alive in Christ and give us the gift of faith. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. This is the birth from above. This is being born again. And it happens before you trust in Christ. You have to be born before you can live, do you not? Jesus says He's come to give us life, so it stands to reason that we must be born before we can receive that life. This is the new birth. So now... We choose Christ by faith, but only because God chose us and sent His Spirit into us. So I'm not denying that you made a choice to follow Christ, but I'm saying you chose God because God chose you and then gave you the ability to see Christ as beautiful and then choose Him. That's why you believe. God made you alive. Though you hated Him and were dead in your sin, He gave you life and gave you faith. Not only that, this might be one of the most beautiful ones for me. God promises to keep you. God promises to keep you. He does not leave us to ourselves to stay in His grace. Because that would not be grace. If you pay a penny for a kingdom, you have still bought the kingdom. But if you receive the kingdom as a gift, it costs you nothing. Then you've truly received a gift. God doesn't leave us to ourselves to stay in His grace. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God guarantees that He will hold us in faith. That though we will fail in our obedience to Him after we're converted, He will keep us because He is faithful. Even when you're not, He is faithful. He chose us To be saved. He began the work in eternity past. He will complete the work that he started. This is written in stone. If you're a believer, you will be saved. The one who is born again and believed on Christ will not fall from God's grace. Because God will cause that person to persevere to the end in faith. I'm not preaching an easy believism that you said a prayer when you were seven and that means you're going to heaven when you die. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying if you have been born again and you have truly trusted in Christ, God will see that you remain faithful following Christ in repentance and obedience until you die. And if you're not following Christ right now in repentance and obedience, then you were never born again. And you need to get on your face before God and beg Him to do a work in your life. Because you have no hope in your own strength. 
So your election, your being chosen by God, Christ's work on your behalf, your faith in Christ, your dying in the faith are all a result of God's doing to his glory, honor, and praise. So no man may boast. This is actually, I think it's just summed up in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. It says, for those whom he, God, foreknew. That doesn't mean he just knows, right? Because God knows everybody before they were born. Foreknew means foreloved, right? Think how the Bible uses the word know, like uh, Adam knew his wife Eve. I'm not trying to, to pervert the scriptures, but means love, right? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is he saying? Those whom God predestined, he called. Those whom he chose in eternity past, he called to himself by the Holy Spirit, giving them faith and causing them to be alive. And those whom the Holy Spirit drew to Christ, he justified, which means he grants them the work of Christ on their behalf so that they can be declared righteous by God at the judgment. And those whom he justifies gives legal righteousness, he will glorify which means they will be with him for eternity. It's an unbreakable chain. Can you see this? Can you see God's glory in your salvation? That he has proven himself to be stronger than your sin. He's proven himself to be stronger than you. That he's proven himself to be, to be all sufficient for your salvation. That he needs nothing from you to add to his work. That He alone is mighty to save. That He has done the impossible in saving you. What was impossible for you to do. Our salvation is the culmination of all of God's attributes on display. In you. You are a show of God's glory if you're a believer. He shows all of who he is through us so that we would magnify his name. So what do we do with this kind of information? Right, what do we do with this knowledge? We can tuck it away and say, sure, I understand solely Deo Gloria now and go about our lives. But that's, that would be wicked, actually, for us to do that. So what does God expect us to do with this knowledge? I have two ideas, and again, there, there are a ton. <laughs> I have two. One marvel at your salvation. You thought I was going to tell you to like go out and do something, didn't you? <laughs> We're not really good at standing in awe before God, are we? Stand in awe before your God and Savior. Praise Him in exalted humility and take comfort in His glorious grace. What I'm telling you to do is whenever you reflect on who you were and how dead you were in your sin and what the scripture says about you and your hostility towards God and now you know that you love him, behold your God in that moment. Behold his saving grace. Behold the outworking of his glory. This is who he is. Daily acknowledge that you're a sinner deserving of His wrath. Not that you used to be a sinner deserving of His wrath, but today you deserve His wrath. But by God's choice and work, you have become a recipient of glorious grace. And listen to me. Do not let this be a checklist. Don't let this be, yeah, like I understand, recipient of grace, gotcha. Don't do that. This is too great and glorious for that. 
God did not die so that you could then see His work through the Scriptures and then say, huh. God did not do this for you. So He did this so that you would know Him. Second, be all about God's glory. This is, the, this is the summation of what God wants from His people, honestly. Be all about His glory. Think about this. If He is, then we are. If God is all for His glory, then we are too. And what I mean by that is every day you have an option. Right? Every day you have an option. Will I honor God and glorify Him or will I dishonor Him with my actions. And I mean, every situation, right? In work, someone like runs their mouth and gets mad. Like you can respond, in, like, you get mad at them, you can respond in grace and kindness, or you can return evil for evil. In your marriages, same thing. You can go out of your way to be kind to your spouse, kind to your spice. I don't know what that means. <laughs> to, be, to be kind to your spouse and, you know, go the extra mile for them and serve them the way that God would have you to. Or you can be cold towards them and indifferent and let them do them. When you see people in need, you can, again, be indifferent towards them or even mean to them. Or you can glorify your God in in manifesting His attributes in your life. Because God's actually working in you, so you have both the desire to do that and the ability to do that, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Everything, every temptation. Am I going to sleep with this person I'm not married to, or am I going to honor God? Am I going to look at pornography, or am I going to honor God? Am I going to help this person in a financial situation? Um, Or am I going to dishonor God? Every day, you have an option. And in light of His glorious grace given to us, we should be compelled to choose His glory, should we not? Like, if His glory has accomplished such great things as saving us, then surely His glory is the best way. If there is joy in His presence and pleasures forevermore in His right hand, surely glorifying Him is the best way. But to sum this whole thing up, from beginning to end, all things are from, for, and to God. Live like it. Live in it. Live in those truths. Praise God for His work in you and in His church because you're not the sole recipient of this. And I can say this too, if you're not a part of the church as in the universal body of people who trust in Christ alone, I'm not saying you're excluded just because I said God chose. I'm not saying you're excluded. I'm saying I don't know who He chose and who He didn't. I know that if you repent and believe the gospel, that He chose you. And all of these things that I've said about God's people can be said about you. So repent and believe and join this church. Even if it's not here at Revolution, join the body of Christ. Those whom God loved in this way. But believer, God shows you to be a vessel of His mercy and His grace and His glory. So make your life reflect this truth. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to Your name. Give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us undeserved love and kindness. We deserve wrath. 
We deserve to be left completely on our own, and yet you chose us. Not because there was anything good in us, but because you are good and you are gracious. Not because we deserved it, but because this is to the praise of your glorious grace. Christ, you bled and died for us after living a life of complete righteousness for us that we didn't deserve. Holy Spirit, you gave us the gift of faith so that we could repent and believe and receive the adoption that God chose us for. Thank you. Help us to live in light of these truths and magnify you. Help us to choose your glory in all things. Let us live lives of thankfulness. Thank you so much for everything you've done for us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.